Hey everyone, it's Kevin here with the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and I am pleased to welcome you to another episode of our Teaching Thursdays, our twice a month teaching episodes with sermons and lecture recordings from yours truly. And we are in our fourth installment, hard to believe it's already been four at this point. We're in our fourth installment of Teaching Thursdays, and so far our conversations have been all about reading, praying, and meditating, that threefold practice that we should all be doing when it comes to our Bible reading. So we started out back episode number 13, to be specific, and we introduced um, the idea of the mind of God. The Bible is the mind of God revealed to us. And then after that, we talked about Christian meditation, that practice that is given to us from the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. And then our last time in Teaching Thursdays was a sermon recording uh, from a sermon I preached a few years back on reading, praying, and meditating. That was from Psalm 119. So if you're tracking with this continual theme, I'd like to focus in on praying. Because we've talked about reading in depth, we've talked about meditating in depth, This next sermon recording is about Jesus' call for his people to watch and pray. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew. It's what Jesus teaches to us while he's in the garden getting ready to be uh, betrayed and arrested and handed over. And so this is at the very end of his earthly ministry before the crucifixion. And Jesus gives a very important instruction for us to keep watch and pray. So I hope you enjoy this sermon, and I hope you see how everything comes together to a head here in our final discussion about reading, praying, and meditating. Thanks for listening to the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and I hope that you are blessed, and I hope you grow in your Christian walk with this sermon. Now, I ask that you would turn with me this evening for our text, which will be found in Matthew 26, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. And I ask you to follow along with me as I read from the Word of God. Here's what it says. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples 
and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the infallible word of God. I ask that you would join with me as we pray and ask the Lord to bless this time that we're together. Oh, gracious Father, we have sang of your glory, of your reigning power, as we call upon you as our almighty King. And we ask, Lord, that you would reign in our hearts as we consider your word tonight. We ask that whatever would happen, it would be to the glory of your name, whether we be convicted of some sin that we were, for one reason or another, unaware of, or we did not have our minds focused upon it prior to being here. We ask that your word would expose what is weak in us, what is hypocritical about us. But Lord, your word would also shine upon us that we would see the glory of our Lord Jesus. And we, if nothing else, Lord, would leave out of here with a greater love and affection for him and what he has done for us and continues to do on our behalf. We ask for your help and that you would be gracious to us now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, it's great to be here this evening. This is my first time being here besides being... Oh, you can be seated. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can stand for the whole time if you want to. Um, I have been here one other time, but it wasn't during a service. I just met up with, with Stephen. Um, but again, it's great to be here. Um, almost everybody in here I don't know, so um, thank you for having me, a stranger, as it were, in your midst. Uh, but... You know, it's, it's a privilege to be able to preach uh, the Word, the Word of God, and um, so I'm very thankful for this opportunity. And uh, this evening, we are here considering the charge that we have, and that is to keep watch and pray. And uh, I'm sad to say that this particular passage, although a, a well-known one for any of us who have grown up in a church context may not necessarily be one that we've given great consideration to. Because if you look at the passage placement of this particular text, it finds its place right between the institution of the Lord's Supper and the subsequent betrayal and arrest and crucifixion of Christ. And so it's common for us, those of us who are familiar with the Bible and the, the structure of it, when we get to a passage like this, sometimes our mind is immediately looking for that next passage that follows, or our mind is kind of concentrated on what we just read, and so we kind of blur through wherever we're at and miss the forest for the trees or vice versa. This particular passage as I mentioned, is structured in a very unique way. And, and we'll think about a few different ways that that is significant for us. But uh, obviously, I don't come here and preach every Sunday. And there's a great benefit to preaching expositionally. There's a great benefit to working through books of the Bible. 
And when we come to a night like this, sometimes we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because we haven't been spending time in the Gospel of Matthew prior to this. So we have a little bit of catching up to do, and I won't spend all night catching up the first 26 chapters of Matthew. But we do have a little bit of catch-up work to do because we want to really get get our minds wrapped around the context of, of what's happening here. So let me give you just a brief survey of the immediate things that have happened prior to this uh, time in, in Gethsemane. So Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. We have the triumphal entry where Jesus enters in. And after that happens, there's kind of a lot of things that happen in a short amount of time. So in Matthew 21 and 22, after Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he kind of goes into this rapid fire of debates that come at him from all of the religious elite. You have the scribes and the Pharisees. You have the Sadducees. You have the Herodians. Everybody has been kind of brewing in their little corner, waiting for Jesus to finally come to Jerusalem so they can find this way to just catch him with his words. Let's stump him theologically. Let's stump him with what he has to say about the Roman Empire. Whatever we can do to get this man arrested and killed, we're going to take advantage of this opportunity. And so Jesus goes, he takes one onslaught after another and just really settles the issue with, with every kind of um, correction from the word of God to his enemies. And then, of course, after Matthew 21 and 22 take place, right after that, you have Jesus giving perhaps the most controversial prediction of his entire ministry, and that is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And that certainly didn't win him any new friends either. And so he gives this pronouncement that the the temple is going to fall and the the Roman Empire is going to come and, and overtake it. And nobody liked hearing that. And then in his spare time, when he's not facing all of these controversies, if we read the Gospel of John, Jesus in John 13 through 17 is spending this very crucial, intimate time with his disciples during his final week. You have the popular chapters such as Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. He gives the promise that the Holy Spirit will be coming to comfort them. He gives the high priestly prayer. All of these things are taking place right before we come here with Jesus in the garden alongside his disciples. So in in the case of Jesus and his 12 disciples, this has been anything but a leisurely week for them. This has been an intense week. And it's no different when we get to the garden. It's common for me to preach through passages expositionally, and while we'll do that um, in some way, shape, or form tonight, I want us to pay special attention to one particular verse in the passage read, and that is verse 41. If you'll look there, I'm going to read that just one more time. It's a very concise verse, and it's the charge that Jesus gives to Peter in the garden. He says this, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want to say a word about the placement of this passage, or at least the geographical placement of it. Because if you follow along through the Gospels, hopefully if you're well-versed in this particular book, you'll, you'll notice that Jesus has actually been here before. 
When it comes to the fact of Judas finding a way to betray Jesus, it says that he knew that Jesus often went to this place for refuge and for prayer. And we read in Luke's gospel in chapter 6 that this place is actually, if you will, a homecoming for the disciples because it was here that Jesus went and prayed with the Father before he selected his twelve. And so it's interesting that throughout the course of their ministry, Jesus leaves, he calls the twelve, and now he comes back his final moment with them before he's betrayed, and he brings them as sort of a homecoming, if you will. And it concludes here in this garden before his betrayal. When we think about Jesus' charge to watch and pray, there's a temptation for us to consider it in isolated terms. And that is to say, when we read this, we think, oh, he's talking to Peter. Oh, he's talking to his disciples. Maybe I should just receive some kind of spiritual application from this. But he's not talking to me. My name is not in this text. So whatever I glean from it is of secondary issue. Well, I want to stir us away from that mindset because the charge to watch and pray is not unique to this instance in the garden. It's also not unique to Peter and the other 12, but it's actually unique to every Christian. The charge to watch and pray is the life of every Christian. And that is what Jesus teaches us. And elsewhere, we'll see here in a little while how that is the case for all of us. But the first consideration I want to give us with this text is that in this text, you have three failed attempts and three failing disciples. These three disciples were not just your typical disciple, right? When you read about Peter, James, and John, they're normally there for all of the interesting moments in Jesus' ministry. One of the most important ones that I can think of is when Lazarus is raised from the dead. Of course, everybody's with him during his triumphal entry, but also before that, you have Jesus' transfiguration. And who's alongside him? Peter, James, and John. These three are not new to the the unique things that Jesus is doing in his ministry. They're right there, eyewitnesses for everything. And for us, when we read this, we normally skim over it and just say, oh yeah, this is the part where Jesus sweats drops of blood and his disciples can't stay awake. Let's keep moving to the next passage. But there's a lot for us to consider. And the first thing that we can consider is how these three disciples failed. They failed their Savior. Jesus gives the charge no less than three times to come with me as I pray and keep watch and pray yourselves. Now, this passage is not about the spiritual gift of insomnia. We don't want to leave out of here and say, there's a new spiritual gift I didn't know about. It's the gift of insomnia. And so Jesus wants us to just be able to stay awake longer for longer periods of time. That is not what this text is about, and thankfully so. Prior to this, Peter gave a stark claim as a disciple of Jesus. Jesus had just finished saying, you're all going to fall away very shortly. Even, in fact, tonight, you're all going to fall away, and I'm going to be betrayed. And, and Peter says, you can look right above our passage in verse 35 of the same chapter, Peter said this, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then it says, and all the disciples said the same. 
So these were zealous men with Jesus. Men who, at least in that case, vowed that they would do whatever it took, even death itself, before they would deny their Savior, before they would deny their teacher. And so it's insult to injury when we read that no less than three times they failed even before the betrayal took place. They failed even his charge to remain here and keep watch with me and pray. But Peter is not the only one who let his words get ahead of him because even prior to that, James and John had come up to him and asked, hey, whenever you're in the kingdom, let's have kind of two seats, one on either side of you, and we'll sit alongside you and we'll reign with you. And the text says that the rest of the disciples didn't like them saying that too much. It says they kind of got a little mad about it. And you can understand why. Imagine your friend going behind your back and saying, hey, can I have a better position than him? That would probably get on our nerves, right? But these three, although they had seen all these things that Christ had done, they were overly zealous. And they let their words get ahead of them. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus came the third time and saw them asleep yet again. Verse 45, he tells them, sleep and take your rest later on. Peter had a nickname, if you will. He was the rock. But James and John had a nickname, too. They were the sons of thunder. It was a pretty, you know, imagine if you had a good friend and you named him, the, don't think about the wrestler, but if you had a friend named the rock, you had another, another set of friends named the, the sons of thunder. But when your moment of need came, the rock was nothing more than sinking sand, and the sons of thunder were merely waterless clouds. They didn't live up to their reputation. They didn't live up to their expectations as the disciples of Christ, because in his time of need, they were fast asleep. But when we read this passage, we need not only consider the fact that these three disciples were token failures in this moment, but Jesus Christ was the token watchman. In this passage, Jesus gives them the charge to watch and pray But he doesn't just give them the charge to keep watch. He demonstrates it. Because as Jesus is in this garden, in his agony, in his time of need and pain and turmoil of what's soon to happen, he's praying. And when he prays, he goes and he wakes his sheep up three times. It's a beautiful picture that, imagine this, because in the Gospel of Luke, It says that Jesus was in such agony that he was sweating drops of blood. And he came to the disciples three times. Imagine they were so asleep, so groggy and drowsy that at one of those times when he came back, perhaps even drops of blood still on his face, they didn't even recognize it because they were so fatigued and so tired and so turned in on themselves. And yet Jesus comes In this place, Gethsemane, he himself being pressed like an olive, but he comes to tend to his sheep in their frailty. He comes as a friend in time of need, 
but he also comes as the king of glory and his three closest friends treat him by sleeping. And this is his last moment with them before he goes to be betrayed and tried and crucified and they're sleeping. But you know, this is an interesting passage because while it seems a surface level event, event, Jesus is in the garden, his disciples are with him in the garden, he's betrayed, and then the story moves on. There's actually something very significant happening in the scope of what we call biblical theology, and that is this. This is not the first story in a garden, is it? It's also not the first story of a betrayal in the garden, of unfaithfulness in the garden. We're brought here in this paramount moment of the disciples' life with Jesus on earth to the origin of it all. We're brought back to a betrayal in the garden because Scripture reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the second Adam. He's the greater Adam. He's the final Adam. But the first Adam was also in the garden, wasn't he? It's interesting because when God gives the charge to Adam in the garden back in the beginning of Genesis, the charge is to keep watch over the garden, isn't it? Exercise dominion over the garden, protect the garden, oversee the garden. And when the devil comes and tempts Eve and tempts Adam, Adam is found to not be obedient to his charge. He's asleep on the job. When we read that familiar passage in Genesis 3, that the serpent comes and talks to Eve, where is Adam in all of this? Now, maybe he's asleep, literally, maybe not, but he's at least asleep in terms of his duty, in terms of his leadership, in terms of his charge that the Lord gave to him. And herein we see the same thing, except this time, Jesus comes to his disciples. Jesus, the second Adam, is wide awake. Jesus is keeping watch in the garden over his own, but they're asleep. And we know this in Scripture that we are found in one of two of the Adams, right? We have in our confession, we talk about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And we're found, whether we're in Christ or not in Christ, we relate either to the first Adam in sin or the second Adam, Jesus Christ, in righteousness. And we're called here to look to the better Adam, Look to the second Adam. Look to the greater Adam, the one who is not asleep in the garden, but the one who nonetheless is betrayed. It's a terrible thing when we read this passage, and this is one of those passages when we look to ourselves and we say, man, if I was there, I would not have done that. This is a very popular thing to do, especially when we read the Old Testament, isn't it? We look at these passages of all the foolish decisions that the Israelites made, and we say, why did they do that? But we're talking about this morning, as a matter of fact, providentially, that the sermon was about the two Adams in Romans chapter 5. And when we look to the scene in the garden, Adam and Eve represent the best of us, right? They represent us, a world prior to sin, and they still fell. So we, if we can take any Gleaning from this text, especially here in the garden, we would not be the ideal human. 
We would be the stereotypical human. We would be fast asleep in the garden. But Jesus gives the charge nonetheless for us to keep watch. We're heated to mimic not the first man in the garden, but the second man. And there's somebody else who's mimicking one of two, as a matter of fact, because Judas, where is he during this? Well, of course, we know the storyline of the Bible. We know that he is setting up the betrayal as maybe he's already traveling with the, the band of the, the ones who are getting ready to arrest Jesus. And he is alongside them as a betrayer. And what is he doing? He's mimicking the first Adam, the first man. He comes to the garden as one who is betraying his master. And Adam did the same thing. Adam betrayed the charge and the trust of his master, God himself. And he coincided with the devil. As we look at this passage, there's another interesting instance happening. In verse 40, we see that when Jesus comes to the three disciples, it's interesting that when he comes, he addresses not all three of them in particular, but Peter. In verse 40, it says, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch one hour, Peter? Remember, Peter had just finished saying, they're all going to fall away probably, but me, even if it means death itself, I'm I'm not going to fall away. I'm going to be right alongside you. And of course, we know that just after that, Peter is about to deny Jesus three times, and then the rooster crows. But Jesus When he addresses Peter here, he gives that charge, which is the main verse we're looking at, 41, but he gives it to Peter. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what Jesus does here is he gives a soul and a heart context for the command to watch and pray. Here's how it works as kind of a proposition. Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. Why and what is the result of it? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Failing to watch, failing to keep watch and pray is this, to enter into temptation. That's exactly the structure of it. Why should we watch and pray that we may not enter into temptation? We must watch and pray. Why? Because the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a structure happening when Jesus gives the charge to watch and pray. And this is interesting, too, because this is how he chose to conclude his earthly ministry. It's interesting. The last explicit charge or explicit teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples before being betrayed is the charge to keep watch and pray. He doesn't explore abstract doctrines. He doesn't explore the ever-popular mantra of our day and age, which is all Jesus ever taught was about love. But watchfulness. Watchfulness is the key that Jesus points the disciples to in their ministry after Jesus is arrested. So he warns of the rooster crowing after this in a way of saying, just as he just said here, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Peter, the guy who is ever so zealous, ever so sure of himself, Jesus says, look, in your own power, you won't even last until morning. In your own power, you won't even make it the rest of this evening without falling away. And Peter is busy trying to convince himself of his own ability while he can't even stay awake. So really, there's a threefold denial happening here, even before we get to Peter's threefold denial of knowing Jesus. There's a denial before Jesus is ever even betrayed, in other words, that they deny the charge to watch and pray. But we, living in retrospect of all this, have similar charges. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then he moves in to start talking about temptation. God will never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. He'll give us a way out. He'll rescue us from our temptations. If we give in to sin, it's because of us. It's our fault. It's our succumbing to it. It's not God's lack of power. But Paul says pride is one of the most deadly things for us to consider as Jesus' disciples. Because if we think we stand, just as the three did here, we'll fall. We'll fall for sure. But the principle doesn't only apply to, let's say, the disciples here. Now, let's be fair to them for a minute. They're living and going through this moment before the giving of the Holy Spirit, before Jesus dies on the cross and is resurrected and reigns in power and glory as he does today. So we have kind of an unfair advantage, if you will. But the interesting thing is that this charge is not only in regards to our being in original sin, what we call being totally depraved, but the charge is also for our indwelling sin. That is to say, the Christian life as it is, the Christian life short of glory. We fight against temptation. We fight against sin daily, even now. So the charge to keep watching and pray is not a pre-Christian or a pre-salvation charge. It's a charge for the rest of our lives. It's a serious charge that we should consider. Because those of you who've been in here on Sunday mornings, I know Stephen's preaching through Galatians. Well, you've probably already worked your way through the passage where Peter falls yet again. He's found to be hypocritical. And this is after this moment. So this charge for us to watch and pray, not to enter into temptation, not to neglect having our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, is not only until you get the Holy Spirit, but also after we have the Holy Spirit. This is a good analogy, at least with Peter, that it's pre-resurrected Christ and post-resurrected Christ, especially in the case in the book of Galatians where Paul has to call him out in his sin, call him out in his failure to keep watch. And so it's a charge for us as well that we keep watch. So here's a consideration for us. What is watchfulness? If If we're going to take this and make it our own, if you will, how exactly do we keep watch and pray? What is the lesson here for us? What is the consideration here for us to keep watch and pray? What is watchfulness? Watchfulness is guarding ourselves against those sins which we are particularly susceptible to. For Judas, 
It was the love of money. For Peter, it was self-reliance. For James and John, it was self-glory, self-exaltation. Beloved, what is it for you? What do you need to keep watch and pray to guard yourself against? John Owen, those of you who are familiar with the Puritans, was given the, the title, The Heart Doctor, because he seemed in all of his writings to be able to get to the heart of the matter, sometimes using a lot of words to, to get there. But he also really had a unique way. If you ever read him, he has a unique way of getting to the root of the matter. He doesn't deal just with surface level. If you follow his writings, it's if you were to bracket it out or look at an outline, because as, as I said, if you read his books, the, sometimes they're hard to follow. But if you can look at an outline, you can see how he deals with the surface level, and then he works his way down to the root. This was John Owen, the heart doctor. Here's what he says about sin and about temptation. This is an interesting consideration. He says, sin and temptation, these are both deadly streams and massive bodies of calm water. But sin aims at the utmost always. These are his words. It does not seek to be mild. Every thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if it were allowed to to develop. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in its modesty, in its first proposals. That is to say, sin and temptation unto sin is subtle. Satan is revealed to us as cunning. One who portrays himself as an angel of light. There's deceit, there's deception happening the author of Hebrews calls giving in to sin the fleeting pleasures. Well, we don't focus on the fleeting part. We focus on the pleasure part. But there's trickery happening because those so-called pleasures are fleeting. They're temporary and they're under the guise of comfort and ease. And according to John Owen, when we consider temptation and entering into it and our call towards watchfulness, we need to see sin in its root. That, that is to say, we need to see sin as what the ultimate end of it is. And that is death, the extreme reality, the extreme conclusion of sin and temptation. Those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress, there's an interesting part there where Christian and his companions have to go through Vanity Fair. And it's a fair full of vanity, self-explanatory. But it's interesting that this fair that's full of vanity, you don't see these explicit examples of sin. Everything there is subtle. Everything there is not seemingly threatening. Everything there is candy to the eye. Everything there is alluring. Everything there is interesting. And they're trying to make it out there before they get snuffed out by all these temptations of sin. And and this is what's happening with Peter, James, and John. Because Peter, the one who has self-reliance, thinks he's being zealous, thinks he's being devoted to Christ, but what he's doing is trusting in himself. 
James and John think they're taking the best seat in the house. The closer we are to Jesus, the better off we are. But what they're doing is looking after glory for themselves and not glory towards Jesus Christ. And beloved, when Satan tempts us, our charge is to keep watch and pray, not for daggers, but for soft pillows underneath which a dagger lies. Because this is how Satan tempts us. Satan doesn't always come to us and explicitly hold a gun to our heads. Satan calls us over to sit here with a warm blanket and a pillow and lull us to sleep. This is why it's appropriate that Jesus says to keep watch and pray. There's an alertness. There's a sobriety to the Christian life. There's not a numbness to the Christian life. There's not a sleepiness to the Christian life. But lest we get all excited and amped up and think that we just need to be on alert all the time, the most important principle for us to consider in this passage, finally, is that watchfulness is resting in Christ. Watchfulness is resting in Christ. Do you know that that's what we're doing right now? We're practicing the charge to keep watch and pray. When we gather here as God's people, we are alerted to the glorious reality of our reigning King, Jesus Christ. We are alerted to keep watch and pray towards the true narrative of reality. I don't know if you know this or not, but when we leave out of here tonight, we're going to be taught a reality and taught a narrative from the world Monday through Saturday night. And then we're going to come here Sunday, Lord willing, and be nourished again, not to our little Christian religious story, or not so we can come here and then leave and say, well, I guess it's back to reality for the rest of the week now. But beloved, when we come here, this is our awakening to true reality. We don't gauge what we talk about here based on how the week looks or what the world tells us or what's on news tonight, even when we go home. But we interpret all of that in light of this, because this is the true reality which we are to consider. That's the glory and the blessing towards us on the Lord's day. The Lord gives us a place, gives us fellowship that we would gather together in order to keep watch and pray. The Lord's table also serves to that end. If you were noticing in our Old Testament reading this evening that what happened when the Israelites were prepared the Passover meal, after they partook of the Passover meal, their charge was to keep watch. And I mentioned about the passage placement of this particular text in Matthew because right before this, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. It's an interesting scene of fulfillment because just as the Israelites took the Passover meal and then went out to keep watch, Jesus calls his disciples together, institutes the Lord's Supper, and brings them to the garden and charges them what? To keep watch. Keep watch and pray. Our response to the glory of Christ is to live in a response of watching and praying. That's our charge. The more we watch and pray, 
By God's grace, the more we know our need to watch and pray. We don't graduate from the watching and praying, but the Lord gives us an ever so clearer glimpse of our need for him and also how sufficient he is for us. One final consideration I want to give you, and that is, I believe that Peter really took this moment to heart. So let's not leave out of here and think that let's just bash on Peter because he's just always evident to make all the wrong decisions and let his words get ahead of him. But I think Peter really took this to heart because if you were to read 1 Peter, the very end of it, I want to just read verses 6 through 9. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9, I want you to listen to these familiar words, but think about them in retrospect of this passage in Matthew 26. Here's what Peter says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that... At the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. I think Peter, by God's grace, understood the lesson that his Savior was teaching him. Because in that passage, he says to cast all our anxieties on him. And how do we do that? We pray. And he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. So in a word, Peter says to us, just as Jesus said to him, keep watch and pray. Keep watch and pray, beloved. I'll close with our larger catechism question 195, because I really find that this helps us in our own consideration. The question is this, what do we pray for in the sixth petition? And our confession in the larger catechism says this, we pray that God would so overrule the world and all in it, subdue the flesh and restrain Satan, order all things, bestow and bless all means of grace, and quicken us to watchfulness in the use of them, that we and all his people may by his providence be kept from being tempted to sin. May that be true of us, beloved. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is a tough consideration for us. Because no doubt this evening we have a lot of things on our mind. Many of us probably have a difficult week ahead. Lord, we ask that you would awaken us to this alertness of considering the charge, because this is not a throwaway charge for the garden, but it's a monumentally important one for all of us even today, as the Apostle Peter reinforces in his letter. Lord, you know what we struggle with. You know the, the sin and the temptation that we give into or that we are particularly susceptible to. But I pray, God, that we would answer the charge by the power of your Holy Spirit to always keep watch and pray, and that is to always rest in our Savior.
to always look at his sufficiency, to look at his adequacy, to look at his perfection, and to know that Jesus as our great shepherd is watching over his sheep. Lord, what a glorious truth that is that we are protected and cared for by our great and mighty shepherd. And Lord, we ask that if our minds seem to draw a blank or if we're just not sure of what the charge to keep watch and pray might mean for us particularly, we ask that you would reveal that to us, Lord, as we come to you in prayer. We want to be more like our Savior. We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask for your help with that as we leave out of here. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, that concludes episode 19 of the podcast. Thank you for listening. I sure appreciate your involvement with what I am releasing and putting out here from the Better Bible Reading Podcast. If you're interested in ways that you can help, one of the things I would want to encourage you to do is to actually go on to iTunes and search this podcast. You can look up Better Bible Reading Podcast, Kevin Morris, or just do some kind of variation of that web search through Google or whatever you want to use and leave a review of this podcast because that is what will help promote this on the iTunes podcast library. Sometimes it's hard to just share link after link after link uh, for this show, but if you're interested in a way that you can help kind of get the word out, help promote this for me, I would appreciate it. Of course, only do it if you're uh, benefiting from listening to these episodes, but if you are, and I would think that you are if you're still listening at this point, um, then help me get the word out. I would be totally thankful uh, to you for doing that. And also, you know, contact me. Talk to me about uh, future episodes that you'd be interested in me uh, releasing, topics, ideas, you know, any of those things. I'd be really interested to hear uh, some feedback from you. You can reach me. You can find me on Facebook if you do a search. But you can also reach me, Kevin, at BetterBibleReading.com. Just send me an email. Talk to me. I'll be sure to say, hey, I'll be sure to engage with you in whatever topic you want. But uh, thank you so much for all your uh, support and all your listening. And uh, you are what makes this podcast worthwhile because um, I'm putting all of this out for you and to help you grow in your Bible reading. So thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your day, great rest of your evening. And God bless.